0: It's been 45 years since a team of bon Vives won their one and only World Championship Grand Prix. Zandvoort, 1975. In a wet-dry race, James Hunt came home one second ahead of Niki Lauda's Ferrari, at which point the pit lane went wild, champagne corks popped and high society hugged. And for one man, known affectionately as Le Patron, it was the realisation of a dream. And that man... Is my guest this week. Welcome to Be On the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Lord Alexander Hesketh is a British peer whose family seat was the Eastern Neston estate near Silverstone. At the age of just 22, he formed Hesketh Racing and transformed the buildings at Eastern Neston into a Formula One factory. And by age 25, he'd not only won a Grand Prix and finished fourth in the Constructors' Championship, he'd withdrawn from the sport. In all, Hesketh contested 52 races over three years, taking that brilliant win at Zandvoort as well as eight more podiums, much to the annoyance of the Formula One establishment who struggled to take the team's laid back party antics seriously. But you underestimated Hesketh at your peril. They were plucky racers and attracted bona fide talent, including inspirational designer Harvey Pothelswaite and, of course, James Hunt. So sit back and enjoy hearing more about this unique race team from the 70s and some of the people hanging onto their coattails. All of it from the horse's mouth, Lord Hesketh himself. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Lord Hesketh, it is lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. It's 45 years since you won the Dutch Grand Prix in 1975 with James Hunt. How do you reflect on that race now? It was a very, very frustrating season because we'd we
1: led a lot of races right from the first. We'd had some mechanical failures. We'd had, you know, there were irritating things. So, you know, we should have won in the Argentine, came second. Um, the race we should have won, which is why we won Holland, was Monaco, which uh, is a it was always a crap track. And we never did well there because our cars... Mm or my cars were um, tended to be because of Harvey they were they were fast-track cars partly because that March itself the original March that we bought was a narrow track car and Harvey came from March so you know it's like it's 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 like you know a guy makes a particularly great wine or a artist you know there's a Harvey theme and speed was the theme and speed is not something that one associates with monaco i mean even in the old days before they wrecked it and put in you know got rid of the gasworks. for people who can't remember why why should you have won monaco 75 i said exactly why because we brought the car in early james had this theory which was and it proved to be entirely correct was that the track if you if you were good enough in other words at holding your line the track was much drier very quick as long as you didn't go off the dry line. Now, most people assume that, that was a rather a hard thing to do. And what happened at Monaco was it did rain, and we brought him in very, very early. We brought him in way before anybody else to change his wheels. And uh, we screwed up the pit stop. I think we took 38 seconds to do the wheels. So that, the, the race then became entirely academic, but the interesting thing is that the next race that happened was Zandvoort. And this time we got it right. And we did the change in what was then a very quick time, of around sort of 14 seconds, because we are talking about a prehistoric world. <laughs> uh, I think the total number of people on the team was 14. And um, the rest is history, as they say. So, so, so it did work. But in fact, the irritating thing was that we, we knew that he was right. But unfortunately, we destroyed ourselves the opportunity for him to prove that he was right. So, I mean, he took it in very good uh, grace. But, um, you know, it's just a lot of races. You know, then we had Silverstone, you know, and we cracked a manifold. You know, it's just something that happens. And it just took the edge off the power, which meant we were running second. You know, having led Fidipa, we were running second. And then we got caught out by the shower at the end of...
0: uh, Gosh, a, a season of what ifs in 75. But when you did win at Zandvoort, was it the realisation of a dream? Can you remember your emotions as James climbed out of the car, surrounded by people on the pit straight? Well, I can, but actually it's not the big emotion. The big emotion is when you first
1: win. So emotion at the big win was actually... I mean, people forget that... Well, firstly, of course, Heskin Racing had huge support from the public, but very little in the press, because firstly, we, we, we'd we really broken the rules. You've got to remember, I mean, I was uh, 22. I actually retired at the age of 25 from racing. So we were seen as interlopers and, you know, all the usual things, you know, it's rather like being, you know, a football team That suddenly comes from the bottom of the second division, turns up, gets in by accident into the Premier League, and then actually basically immediately starts beating up teams in the top six. That's the sort of analogy I give you. And um, the truth is that in 73, Harvey started drawing a car in September. That car came to Interlagos uh, but couldn't run because there was a problem with the fuel tanks in January, having never been tested. And I hated Interlagos. We never did well there. But on the Monday after Interlagos, at the track, there was nobody there, that first 308A car went out and was two seconds a lap quicker than pole position on the day before. We knew what the car could do. It came back here. It went to the Daily Express International Trophy. It got on pole. 1.7 s- seconds. 1.7 seconds quicker than anyone else. We only did about eight laps of qualifying. Then uh, we had, of course, a mechanical failure on the grid, which is that the flag dropped. Uh, James put the car into gear and the uh, gear shift broke. So rather to our surprise, because remember there were no radios, there was nothing. Uh, so everything, we were all wait, great noise in the distance. Crowd starts rising in the far stands, because of course it's woodcut, it's not all what it is now. And hello, Lotus 72, and a stream of other cars. And we're 16th, what could have happened? Of course, we don't know what's happened. We didn't know for the whole race. Anyway, then he did this incredible drive. I mean, he drove through 16 cars. And then I always remember the thing, if you want the result, the question is, you know, that moment of emotion. The moment of emotion for me was we couldn't see it. There were no TV monitors. You've got to remember it's a different world. But what I could see was a wall of white, and that was the far end of the Woodcut grandstands, and it was the programmes, and the crowd was going up as James took Ronnie with two wheels on the grass at Woodcut and took the lead.
0: And that was it. The moment we got the lead, we knew we were going to win. Lord Hesketh, that was one of the great overtakes. No one does that to Ronnie Peterson at Woodcote. No. Very, very few people can hold their foot to the floor. Well, of course, it's
1: gone now. But very, very few people can hold their foot to the floor at Woodcote. And there are plenty of people, I'm afraid, who claim that they held their feet to the floor. But I can assure you with my own ears, though with rather deficient hearing now, But I have heard that little giveaway of a lift.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But that international trophy win, that was the moment of euphoria for you, almost more than Zanvoort, is that? That's what you're saying, okay. How was that win? I mean, Zanvoort was the first world championship win. How was that received within the Formula One paddock? Can you remember what the other team principals said, the guys at Ferrari, Bernie Ecclestone's Brabham, things like that?
1: Well, Bernie always got the point
0: of Heskett Racing. He realised that in
1: a sense, uh, we were there for the fun, but we actually were not there to be made fun of. There were many people who had views which inc- which weren't particularly attractive, but they actually encouraged the team. I mean, it's not just me or just James or Bubbles or Harvey. It's the whole team. You've got to remember that we had, if you look at where the mechanics went on to, they all went, you know, uh, who was Nicky Lyder's mechanic a year later? He was from Hesco Racing, right? Born in Toaster, working for the number one red car coming out of Maranello. So we had the best people, or the equal best, right the way down the batting order. And that's really important, you know, You've got to have, you've got to have the best truck here because you've got to have the best guy who goes and sees the new tyres no one's spoken about, which he's spotted on the back of the Goodyear truck or the Firestone truck, whichever, whoever's supplying your tyres. And so all of that is important and it requires a competitive spirit and also as an element of the Gold Hawk roads. The great thing is that that's what Bernie understood about us is that we were all at heart secondhand car dealers which was very important
0: in achieving a result it's really interesting that you say bernie got the point of hesketh racing now what was the point of hesketh it was completely accidental what happened was that bubbles
1: bubbles was a great friend there was a there was a famous flat at cliff davis's garage off the goldhawk road uh, this is going back to the early 60s. And living in that flat at various times were Frank Williams, uh, Jochen Rint, Charles Lucas, Bubbles Horsley. The list goes on and on. But it is, uh, if, if, if you were in horse racing and you were looking for a sort of perfect breeding for 40 years down the road, you wanted to look at the provenance of Grand Prix racing in its heyday. If you would, let's say, let's say the heyday of the DFV 312BB time, they all had a connection. And its annual event wasn't the BRDC or the BARC, it was Cliff Davis's filth night out at a big hotel at Heathrow. That was the
0: occasion you wanted to go to by a million miles. Why did you feel the need to stick two fingers up at the establishment, the Formula One establishment?
1: I didn't feel that at all. I mean, I think the thing is, it's not really about background. What I described to you, which you, you, you think is background, actually is, why was I there? I was there because when I was eight years old, I was reading the Eagle Sports Annual, and I was looking at pictures of Fangio pictures of Sterling Moss, reading Jenkinson's words about the Mille Mille. I never went to a car race until I was about 16 years old. My entire view was based on the influence of the books that I read, together with the fact that because my mother was Scots, my father died when I was five, I spent a lot of time being brought up by my grandparents in Berwickshire, And a farmer just up the road was Jim Clark. And so I used to go to Churnside, which is where the Ford dealership was, which is where he got his first drive from, and Charterhall was just down the road. I never went to Charterhall, I never saw Charterhall, but because he was the best and greatest Scotsman at that time that anyone had ever heard of, I remember learning to hate Graham Hill watching a black- and white television just around Christmas time in 1962, '63, when Hill in a BRM beat Jim Clark in South Africa. I had, no, I had no idea who Graham Hill was, but I knew that I hated him because of that. This was, in, this was a black and white telly lost in the mists and snow of the borders. So all of that is what you have to understand is what's painting a really completely sort of uh, weird picture of what I think Formula One is. And then I get a car, I'm 17, I get my license, I get a full Cortina 1600E in Dragoon Red, which I immediately put extra lights on the front. And the milkman in Toaster was a, was a guy called Bob Freebra. And he was a semi-works driver in a Mini Coupe Ress. And I went and drove my car to be his support car on the Monte Carlo Rally in, I suppose, January 68. So that's the first time I really got sort of within touching distance. And it does show you how the world has changed. Because the one thing I do remember is that we all went to a Grand Ghana event after the Monte Carlo rally, where the prizes were all presented by someone who I thought was about 110. I think he probably was about 80, which was Tommy Wisdom, not the comedian, the driver. And it's out of that that I get to someone calling me up because i got a house next door. My mother had a house next door to Silverstone and saying, can we all come and stay? And then suddenly finding that York and Rint, Piers Courage, Charles Lucas, all these guys turned up. And that's the first time I ever really went to Silverstone. I'd been to a bike race when I was about seven, but I hardly knew what it was or where the connection was.
0: What an amazing story. All these champions turning up at your door. Did you ever want to be a driver yourself? No. I did one race. In a House of Lords versus the House of Commons that
1: brands had my least favorite track in the world. And I got black flagged in a Ford Escort. And that made it quite clear to me that not only did I have no ability, it was something that I would never ever
0: consider again. <laughs> okay, well, let's wind the clock back or, or, or forward in terms of what you've been saying to 1972. Why do you decide that you want your own racing team? Where did that come from? And- just talk us through those early days. Oh, uh, well, it's very simple. I was,
1: I was walking down, uh, Bubbles rented a room. I'm not sure if he actually ever paid any rent, but he had took the top room in Piers and Sally Courage's house in Southern Avenue in Pimlico. And we were walking down the street and he, had, he used to do a bit of dealing in cars then. And he was sort of rather, not very hard, trying to sell me a, a, a sort of, 15,000-mile, 2.2-litre 911, or 2-litre 911, I think. And then he said, "Um, I'm really keen just to give F3 a go again. And I don't think I asked what it cost. I didn't think it cost that much. And he said, oh, I've got a very cheap car I'm having made. So we went, it was being built by a guy called Jeff Rumble, and it was down at the end of um, Dunsfeld, the end of the runway. It was being built in the barn. And it was called the Dassel Mark 9. And um, I didn't know much about cars, but I was very impressed. It had inboard front brakes, which was very unusual in an F3 car in those days. The only one There was a very pretty, I think it may be called the Lotus 69. There was a little Lotus F3 car, which had inboard front
0: discs. Beautifully fared. I always remember. They were very, very, they're rather sexy. But anyway. And you just thought, I'll support my friend. Yeah. Was it as simple as that? Let's go F3 racing together. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't. I mean, um, I, the, my only real interest was
1: the paintwork. <laughs> I wanted it to look smart. W- was it
0: white? Was no, that where it was, the it was, it was white... dark
1: metallic blue with yellow
0: pinstriping? <laughs> <laughs> so you go racing with bubbles. Did it become immediately apparent that he wasn't a future world champion? but you'd got the bug at this point and wanted to pursue it. Well, I was under
1: the, possibly the mistaken impression that he could have already been world champion if he hadn't packed it in a few years before. But he, no, he got out of the car after we went to Thruxton. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was cold and windy, spring day. And uh, he said, oh, dear, it's all got a lot quicker. And there was, what kept, um Ricky Von Opel was there in, a, in an Enzyme. And he was winning everything that year. And he had a transporter, which looked like an F1 transporter. I mean, now, of course, it looks like a sort of removal van. But in those days, a sort of full 16-ton long-wheelbase truck with a coach-built body on it was the bee's knees. And, I mean, Lotus had a Marshall coachwork truck which they all nearly died of heating because it didn't have air conditioning and it was all beautifully streamlined, but of course it got no ventilation. So we went to Monaco and Bubbles said, well, I don't think I'm going to qualify because we had to qualify. In those days, you never had to qualify for anything, but Monaco, everyone wanted to go to Monaco in F3, so you had to qualify. So we got hold of a charming guy called Steve Thompson and he did the only thing I wanted to do was to qualify. We got on the grid. I was going to be thrilled because it would be embarrassing to go down there and not get on the grid. Not that I knew anyone in racing, but I do know it's just the principle of the thing. You've got to have an objective. So the objective was to get on the grid. And he got, you know, we were on the grid and we finished middle of the field. So I was absolutely thrilled. And then the next race was at a proper track called Chimay. It's in Belgium. Chimay was organized, clerk of the course, proprietor chef to keep everything was the baron Chime, who drove around he was about i suppose i thought he was about 80 but i think probably about young 51 and um he drove around with an e-type jaguar with the windscreen removed and the track's very simple it's got three straights and three corners uh one a hairpin and two sort of nearly a hairpin uh no barriers an assortment of straw bales proper road racing and um, we got there, and Bubbles said, I've given up being the driver. I'm now the team manager, and uh, I've hired a driver. So I was there, introduced him, and there was no buildings at all at the track. There was the sort of First World War medical tent, camouflaged. Well, it wasn't even camouflage; it was just khaki, because I don't think they had much camouflage in the First World War. And uh, there was James Hunt.
0: And so Bubbles hired James Hunt, without you knowing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we need to just establish a little bit more about this. So what did Bubbles see in James Hunt and what were your first impressions of James?
1: The only thing really was he did have a, he had a nickname, which was Hunt the Shunt, which was that he was very quick, but he's the only driver I think I've ever met who nearly died by drowning, funnily enough, at Zandvoort because he turned his car over into one of the notorious sand dunes, and his helmet started filling up with sand as he was upside down. So I think Bubbles quite rightly took the view he had potential. And then and I can't remember what happened at that race. I don't. I don't recall seeing any of it. I don't know why. And the first race I actually saw him in was at Silverstone a couple of weeks later, in the wet. And funny enough, he took the lead, but unfortunately backwards because he got pushed on the start and finished up in the pit wall, because in those days there was a wall and the lane was elevated above the track, right beneath my feet. So I thought, well, the very fact that he was sort of sort of somewhere near the lead meant that that was encouraging. The thing is, the car wasn't that good. It wasn't that bad, but it wasn't that good. We weren't going anywhere. That was quite clear. And the next thing that happened was Bubbles said, well, I think we ought to see if we can have a go at F2 before the season ends. And in those days, it used to be called the Gold Cup at Olden, Olden Park. And that's the first race. And I'd really practically forgotten I got any involvement in the team. And Bubbles called up and said, look, uh, we could do this because uh, Max Mosley hasn't paid James. He hadn't paid him at all for the entire season, as far as I can make it. So, And he didn't really want to give him any cash them. So what we got was we got a lent a previous year's F2 chassis. And I bought, I think, two new BDAs from Northampton. And basically, the rest is history, because that race had three cars in it, three drivers, which were Ronnie Peterson, Nicky Lauder, and James Hunt. And the first two were in 72 contemporary cars, and we were in a 71 relic but it was ding dong football from the very word go. So at that point, I then luckily made with Bubbles another huge mistake. We had a very, so we said, right, OK, we've got a driver who quite clearly is quite good. So we must now do something to try and show that we actually can organize a team and make his career. Very foolishly, we made the mistake of trying to approach this in a professional manner and analyze the situation. And luckily, the outcome of this resulted in disaster, which actually was the making of the team and James Hunt, because careful analysis said that we should pick the car which had won the European F2 Championship that season, which was the GS14A Certis, and they were going to build a B for 1973. So we went down to Edenbridge, And I bought two cars for delivery. And uh, we took them out. And the season started. And we went up to Leicestershire to Mallory Park. And there was the March transporter. And there was a choice. But no one else had taken it apart from March, who were the works team, which was the BMW engine car. They no wanted to see the BMW engine, little six-cylinder. They were red then, the Marches. And they came out, I think Carlos Pache was the number one driver for them. And these two red things came out of the box. and It took about they only had to do about two laps. And it was absolutely clear that this engine was a completely different engine to a BDA. Uh, well, it obviously clearly was a different engine, but I'm talking about its actual capability. And it had everything except for torque, which was demonstrated, because I think the only race that Cosi won that year was the ring in uh, Rondell in the wet. And of course, with the torque, it made up for the deficit. But of course, the rest of the races were all dry. So the key event that happened for us was, that the entire front suspension unit came out of the monocoque going round the um, hairpin. So I said, hang on a second, this is not very good. This is a primary structural failure. So we sort of battled on with it, Um, and the car they kept breaking down. I mean, it was not satisfactory, and finally at Hockenheim the crowd started booing because there were two heats. We broke down on the start line, front row of the grid, both times. They started booing. James got out and gave them a a Hitler salute. Then they went completely ballistic. We had to abandon the pits and head straight nonstop
0: for Frankfurt Airport. Anyway, that was was really the end of F2. So F2 was not a success. I mean, look, two questions at this point, if I may. First of all, did you hit it off with James Hunt straight away? How would you describe your relationship with him in these early days? Uh, Well, it didn't matter what my relationship
1: with him was really. What mattered was the relationship he had with Bubbles. The key to understand that the success of the team depended on whoever had the talent basically made the decision in their department. So the team was run by Bubbles. So if Bubbles thought this was the best way to do the team, then his rule ruled. Uh, If James wanted the car adjusted in a certain way, that was Essentially, a debate between him and later on when Harvey joined the team. It was very expensive, F2, that was the other thing. I mean, I remember having to go and buy another engine, and take it down to Poe. A BDA was 8,000 quid. Well, he multiplied that by 20 an hour, So it was an expensive 160 grand. And I thought, what am I getting for 160 grand? I mean, you know. You've got the only paper that even mentions the races taking place in a line about this big is the Daily Express, which by the, in those days, the Express was the number one sports paper in this country by a mile. I mean, you know, everyone else was trailing, and um, no one else is going to carry it. So, in a funny way, to change to F1, I, I rented a chassis from a new a brand new one, but it was still rented a chassis from March. I bought two DFVs or three DFEs, and they were, I think maybe the F2 engine was 6K, I think a DFE then was about just under
0: 9,000 quid, a new one. For not much more cash, you could go Formula One racing?
1: Well, you. Well, no, of course there's a bit more than that, because first you needed three engines, you, then you also needed about, you know you, needed, you didn't have eight, eight wheels, you had 32 wheels, and so then you said, okay, what kind of wheels are we going to have, and then we're going to have magnesium, blah, blah, blah. And then you need a lot of gearboxes. And then you have things that did cost money in just consumables. I mean, the Prince of Darkness, AKA Lucas Electrics, they had this sort of primitive, I suppose in today's terms, the spark boxes on the fuel injection system were sort of, I think, sort of a combination of rubber bands, clockwork, digital, and um, analog, a bit of each. I don't know what was in them, but what I do know is they cost a 1,000 quid every time they went wrong, and there was always a pile of them at the end of a race meeting. In a sense, um, there was quite a lot on the cars that was pretty leading edge in the sense that you couldn't go and buy it, you couldn't get it off an aircraft company. You, I mean, Lucas were an air, aerospace supplier, but in terms of this piece of kit, the only people using it were F1, and maybe, I assume... It was used on fuel control on military engines or or civil aviation engines. But there was an element of unreliability, which is less
0: prevalent today. So who ultimately made the call to do Formula One? Was it Bubbles? Was it you? Or was it James?
1: Well, I think, funnily enough, me. But that was only because I was bored with where we were going in F2. So I wouldn't say it had a great deal of sort of... uh, creative, modern, managerial thinking? No. I mean, were we going to spend the rest of the season scurfing about in the 30s? No, was the answer. So either we packed up and went home, which left a very talented, we thought, nobody else did at that moment, uh, driver. So we thought we'd push on with the driver. So it's to support James? Yeah. Also, it was Bubbles' job. He had to give up being a second-hand car dealer. There were people... You know, there was you know, there was um, Bob Spar shot up in Luton putting it all together. You know, there were people who had committed time and that was going to be their project for the I mean, I wasn't expecting anyone to... They weren't getting a job for
0: life, but they were expecting to do the season. You can't just leave people in the lurch. Now, you say your relationship with James didn't matter at this point. It was much more important how he got on with Bubbles, but yeah. still... What did you make of James Hunt, the early version of him in 72? He was very
1: straightforward. So you didn't have to sort of make anything of him.
0: Instinctively, I liked him.
1: He was quite busy because he was, he, you see, he, there was very little money in racing. In terms of now, F1 drivers, proper drivers, I mean, proper guys who could qualify in a decent place on the grid, were getting less money than a modern day test driver were getting. I mean, that's why he had to go and win the Avon Tour of Britain. I mean, the the cash he took out of that, and that's the following year, um, was very important. I think it was probably more. He made more out of that one race than I was paying him. I mean, my problem with him, in terms of paying him, was that any money I gave to him was coming out of the car. Because what people don't understand is we always ran on by far and away the smallest budget. One day, uh, a racing aficionado will actually do a cost of a world championship point. They will work it out. There will be some academic who will probably be given a large amount of money to do it too. And um, you can't do it across history because that's quite impossible. But you certainly can get an equivalence as long as you remove Ferrari from the calculation. But if you take DFV teams, you certainly could do that exercise circa 19. Well, when the DfE comes in, so you can start with the load of 69 and go through to 80. There's a good decade you can work on. And I would suggest that in that decade, world championship point per thousand pounds, that cup will be won by a clear margin by race. Racing.
0: Well, you claimed at the time that you were the biggest little team in the world. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of catch, that's absolutely that's true. Crazy. And I've been proved entirely correct. But on the cash front, you could have brought some money in, but you chose not to have sponsorship. Why was that?
1: Well, that's also slightly a sort of modern reading of history. I know this sounds very odd, because we live in an age where celebrity has value. Pretty girls you've never heard of in your life have got two million followers on Instagram and an income of a million a year. And I look at that in absolute amazement, because I remember are going to two meetings in the same day in New York in 1975, just before the US GP, which was our last GP as a proper team, and with James. And I had a meeting with um, Texaco, and I had a meeting with Philip Morris. And the problem at both meetings was exactly the same. And this is representative of meetings which I'd had over the previous 18 months, because we engaged with Philip Morris 18 months before that. And they both said the same thing. They said, and because the coverage we got was actually huge, because we got coverage where other teams didn't. We got things like we got the front of Parry Match. We got uh, Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated in those days did not touch F1. It was considered funny cars or, you know, very much sort of East Coast rich kids, you know, West Coast, rich hippies, but nothing happened between the Nevada state line and the Connecticut state line, as far as Sports Illustrated was concerned, which was all NASCAR, USAC. That was you know, grown-up racing. And they did a huge piece on racing. And the, the The problem was that we got a lot of coverage which was in non-racing press, which today everyone would be going, wow, this is fantastic, oh my God. Then they were saying, do you know what? Alexander, we've got a real problem because we love the team. It's terrific. It's absolutely superb. The trouble is, you guys are too famous. There's too much personality. Because they were surrounded by all these madmen lookalikes who were all talking about product, product, product. They didn't want, in those days, people. Which, in fact, is, is sort of weird because they were do you remember you know, people like Ronald Reagan's first time they made, they were more famous for advertising cigarettes when he was a film star he was better known because he was the lead figure on the biggest selling brand in America but i don't know it was it was um,
0: it's a different world and that's all there is so you did try and find sponsorship just yeah, yeah. never got the deal that you wanted
1: yeah i mean there was no point we did sorry we did <laughs> yes we did we did get an offer actually, I've forgotten this, uh, Parmalat. Now, long since gone, most of the board I'm serving lengthy sentences in the Sao Paolo prison in Milan. Um, but of course that that ended in tears because um, we went to the lunch which was, I can't remember, some fashionable Italian restaurant on the King's Road. And I went to the lunch under the impression that the deal was one and a half million, which was terrific. Because in those days, at uh, a decent DFE team you needed a million quid. And we spent, I spent 360 in 75. So that shows you the difference on what, uh, and we everybody reckoned that Ferrari got about 5 million in the race shop. Anyway, one and a half million, we could have looked at that as being very, that could have allowed us to actually up our game in terms of R and D expenditure. Because we didn't need to spend any more on the track because we could, we were as good. We, we, you know, we changed tires, we quit, all the rest of it. Anyway, I went to the lunch, but the problem with the lunch was that actually it wasn't one and a half million. 750,000 had to go back to Parmalat. It was a money laundering scheme. So I thought, well, you know 750,000 is not actually gonna take us because one of the problems it's gonna have, the minute we get a full sponsor, what's going to happen is there's
0: going to be a great bunch of hangers-on. But do you think that first deal might have opened the sluice gates and and attracted other sponsors to come on board? No, because
1: it wasn't worth doing at 750,000. Because we were you can't tell because you never know what people's circumstances. But for instance, if you take a, in some ways, very similar team in terms of what it had in to use that terrible word, resources, which I don't believe in as well because it usually means taxpayers' money. But I would say that that what we were trying to do needed whatever budget Ken Tyrrell had. And we reckoned that Ken's budget was about a million. So to have a sponsor and a sponsor who's going to be, you know, hands-on. And you've got to remember, what would they do with the driver? Because one of the problems is, I think Heskey Racing succeeded because I did not, I mean, you have to go and ask Bubbles, but I personally do not think I ever interfered very much in the key decision-making process. The history of motor racing is riddled with self-appointed chieftains suddenly becoming self-declared experts and with usually disastrous, to at best, mediocre results. What would have happened to James? Would a hot 20 20-year-old Italian have suddenly been produced, put in the car? At which point he would have immediately been encouraged because someone else would have appeared in the pit lane who was his manager, who would be saying, You're not getting, you know, James has got a better DFE than you have. He's getting, he's got 20 more horsepower coming out of that. They're putting all the effort into his car, not your car. And then the grief that causes and all the rest of it. And, the, and, and that then leads to friction. And, and then if you haven't got enough money, You've got to have stability to make up for the shortage of cash, which is what
0: we had. So you were carrying the team. What did your family make of you spending sums like that on a on a racing team? Did they see it as a frivolous activity?
1: No, they didn't see it as a frivolous activity. My two brothers were younger; they were wholly supportive, and my mother was wholly supportive. Uh, you've got to remember the cars; everything was being built in the stable block, and a, a lot of the mechanics were living in cottages on the estate. I mean, everything happened, you know, you came, people who've come to stay at the house. they come down for breakfast, and they find three or four mechanics having breakfast there. So, you know, around a mahogany table. So, it was part, you know, it was, it was- Unique, is what it was. Well, I don't know about <laughs> you, yeah, I suppose. well, I'll well, tell you what, it was a great deal cheaper to do it that way than go and buy a new
0: factory unit and nothing was happening in the stables. Can you describe the setup then at Eastern Neston? So you say the stables. Now what do you mean? Well by it, was the a, stables? it was a
1: traditional big old quadrangle of stables. So I mean it How was How big
0: so? are we talking?
1: Yeah. I mean it was it was plenty big enough to maintain a two car F one team and squeeze in and not squeeze, fit in, two dynamometers. Not one, but two. So it had two chest houses built into it as
0: well to put the DFVs on, to do our own rebuilds. And then when the doc was there yeah. designing the 308, where would he have been doing that? Was that all in the state?
1: Yeah. It was in there too. Just was well, It
0: was very big. It
1: went all the way around, okay. you see. So there was an archway. So on the right of the archway, there were about, I suppose, about six stables it was big in the sense the stables were inside a bigger room, i.e. they were not like stables you see at a racetrack. It's a big space. It's like, if you look at this room, it's like the stables come under half the height of the so wall. So you could
0: take the stables out and be left with a bigger room. That's
1: exactly what you finished okay. up with. So sort of eight sets of stables in this block. So the biggest one was basically the race shop, assemb- final assembly, okay? And then... On the right you had the stores, then beyond that, the next first half of the next block was the fabrication shop, and that had a great big jig in the middle of it, because the biggest single item was the monocoque. And then uh, then the next half of that was the drawing office, then you came round, then that was all final assembly, and then the, the dinos were on the other corner, so the opposite side of where we started this little journey, so... Anyway, it all fitted very nicely. The archway was big enough to take a big GP transporter to drive straight into it. And were you proud of what you created there? I saw it entirely that the building was actually doing something that was entirely contemporaneous, which was, for me and also for, for my family, very satisfactory. It made the whole purpose of the building and the, and the institution, if you want to call it that, actually look completely irrelevant, which was
0: nice. Something I touched on earlier, and I'm not sure you gave me quite the answer, was your desire to stick two fingers up at the establishment. In that, your first World Championship Grand Prix in 73, Monaco Grand Prix. I never (laughs) wanted to stick up two fingers at the establishment. You turn up at Monaco with a, a massive yacht... Yeah. in an era when there weren't... Well, the rent, it, weren't rented it, rented it. Yeah. <laughs> And then what? There were rollers to drive you around and all this sort of thing. How did people in Formula One react to you at that first Grand Prix? Well, I don't know. They I think there was now. champagne in the but, pits. I mean, the thing right? is, after, if you've got a sense of humour,
1: you can play it up a bit because it clearly entertained some and irritated others. I think the one thing it did, the greatest advantage we ever had was that I think people underestimated us, and that is a huge advantage
0: in any sport, in any undertaking, for any team. How different were you from the rest then? Formula One has this glamorous image, particularly when you're in places like Monaco. Were you actually that different to the others?
1: I think we were very different in one sense. Well, the first thing is that all the teams then, maybe not McLaren, but I mean, if you look at Lotus dictatorship. Brabham, Bernie dictatorship. Uh, Ferrari, empire, dictatorship. So you had dictatorship and then a team manager. What you had with us was we luckily didn't have very much experience. So we were willing to go and try things, often with huge lack of success, such as Um, when we took the wings off the 30s at Goodwood, testing to see whether it made a difference to the speed, which it certainly did, but the car then took off at the end of the straight and finished up with James upside down again, hanging by the straps, asking for a fag as the fuel drained out of the car. And, of course, with no fire engine. You know, it was testing midweek, 1970 one there. there weren't people didn't have any fire engines so a very very slow sort of um, green goddess appeared from Chichester and I was cool I was quite a long way away when I heard about it and I got there before the fire engine I mean I was like 15 miles away so um I think what we did have was we were not hidebound by convention and I'm talking about the conventions. It is, well, that's the way you do this, that's the way you do that, this is who you use for tires, blah, blah, blah. And I think that because of that, and because the proprietor didn't have any sort of egotistical desires to demonstrate his mastership of how, knowing better than anyone else how to do it meant that the most talented individual that he could do what he did in the way that he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So you finished up with a Harvey-James relationship, which was absolutely crucial, and you finished up with a Bubbles-James relationship, which was equally crucial but in a completely different dimension. And occasionally I would make an intervention which would always be dealt with very successfully which is, regardless what disagreements the three of them might have been having, they always collectively said no to me, and that was always a very good thing. So um, that all worked quite. That's, so that's saying no to me. That I think probably that's the big difference. Would there have been three people at Lotus who turned around and said no to Colin? No. Would there have been three who turned around at Brown and said
0: no to Bernie? No. So that's the difference. There, so you've got it in one. <laughs> Now, look, about this fun-loving attitude, how, how difficult was it to be the sort of party team in what was such a dangerous era in Formula One? Well, it's exactly
1: the same as getting pissed in the, in the mess at an RAF fighter station in 1940. I mean, you, firstly, you don't think about danger because if there is danger, it doesn't happen to you. That's, that's human nature. The second thing is that if you're doing something which is dangerous, which you you convince yourself, A, it's not, and you certainly make sure that everyone else doesn't believe that you think it's dangerous. And that, in turn, leads to the fact that you take a pretty, let's say, fair attitude to living. And the fact is, prior to there being so many sort of public relations, marketing, blah, 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 figures loitering about, and there was not a computer-controlled pit-pass system I mean, when I first went, I mean, the key was, was the, the first person you tipped when you got to Monaco was the concierge of the Hotel de Paris, because he certainly would be able to extract from some fairly corrupt figure in the AOC or the Automobile Club de Monaco, whatever it's called, the requisite paperwork to hand out to young ladies. So. Um, Go on then. How, how mad were the parties? They weren't that mad. I mean, the key to a good party. Is it's going to have a mixture of everything? You want some drivers, and you want some witty people. You want some pretty girls. Uh, you want you want all sorts of different things, and you want people who are all competing with each other. Now, if you go to Monaco, you've got a lot of quite fa- famous people, but then suddenly they're coming in to a room where there are people who. For the next seventy-two hours, are actually considerably more famous than they are, and that usually—I mean, occasionally—if they're not very, they haven't got a sense of humour, they sort of shuffle off. And but most people actually respond to that, so you get it, it. It all works a charm.
0: Now, do you have any regrets about the way you went about Formula One? Because you've you've already touched on the fact that maybe you attract the wrong type of media attention, and that might have scuppered a few deals sponsorship deals if you did it again now would you do it differently no because the reason it
1: worked was because it wasn't planned it wasn't even an idea it was a series of events a bit like a i suppose a chain reaction and it fed off itself and it fed off itself in a net technically beneficial way and demonstrated itself by being highly competitive Would I have done it different? No, I wouldn't, because I think that you've got to remove all the people who basically prejudge that period of racing, particularly Hesketh racing. There's a new generation coming up, and it's very interesting how Hesketh racing has survived. The number of people who are trying to make programmes about it, trying to make films about it, trying to make documentaries now with amazon netflix coming you know i mean i thought this would all be dead now and i could just i mean the very fact you're here today i mean it's it's sort of in a sense slightly embarrassing the but it says something about what the team achieved i mean i had an amazing clip sent to me the other day of someone who'd gone up with talented new technology who had completely cleaned up the footage of Schechter's wing nearly taking off James's head in the big crash
0: Silverstone at the 73 Silverstone yeah.
1: British Grand Prix in 73. I mean, it, it, the interesting thing is, I think he would have won the race if that crash hadn't happened because it knocked off the airbox. And the airbox was worth 400 RPM because that was the first piece of the car that Harvey had completely changed, which is the March airbox, was that rather squat oval thing. And we had this great big vertical airbox. And everyone, you know, the journalists were looking at it saying, What is that? And it did look odd. But the point was that in a wind tunnel, what it really did was it created a level of pressure, which it was, you know, it was sort of early case of using nature to overpressurize the engine.
0: That's right. And you had to revert to the old one, didn't you, for the restart? Yeah, because the four hundred where the technology,
1: you know, that the top of the row bar had had all the paint taken off it from Schechter's mm. wing. But if it had been an inch lower, that would have been the top
0: of Arthur's head. So have you had interests from the likes of Netflix to make well, uh, documentaries about uh, yeah, the we, there's The thing about films
1: is... I mean, rush was happening for I think about seven years before it actually happened. I mean, it originally it started off as being a film about Heskid racing, believe it or not. It finished up being what it was because they ran short of money getting the thing financed, and so the biggest additional piece of money came from Austrian TV, which is why the story got completely changed. So you could, it, it, everything, even you know, people think, that "Oh, well, they're going to make a film about it?" Actually. Hesky Racing became an irrelevance in Rush. That had nothing to do with the story. It was all to do with the money. That which meant the story then had to be rewritten, but which what... I understand. I didn't have a problem mm. with it. I'm just saying, so when you say, yes, there are, there are a lot of people who have what they call in development. But I have now reached an age of cynicism whereby it may well be happening
0: long after <laughs> my funeral. Well, back to Rush then. What about James? Do you think? But I thought James and was Nick Chris Hemsworth uh, a good James Hunt? Did he? Yeah, you? I thought
1: he was. I, you couldn't do better. I think it's very difficult. You'd have to ask. though I'm not. I'm not an actor. I mean, I think the problem is that, in an obvious way, it was it was uncanny. I mean, it practically was James Hunt. Mm. I think that if you spoke to someone who was a was an actor or was a producer, you know, it's a bit like you know, films about historical characters that's you know like Winston Churchill. I mean there's always a debate about do you want the person to be essentially a sort of a completely robotic impersonation or do you want someone who's able to do something which is completely different but completely captures the essence. You know, it's difficult.
0: What do you think James would have made of it? I don't think he would be much
1: interested. the great thing about James is that you know he was clever. He had in a funny way, he was a fantastic journalist. I mean, he could write. He actually could write. I think, you know, James's interests, they may have been on occasion mercurial, but they he had an interest. I don't think, funnily enough, he would have been interested in the film. I mean, I think he's a bit like me. I think you do something, you create it. It's done what it's set out to do. Um, I mean, you won't see any pictures of any cars around here. You know, because otherwise people kind of say, well, you know, Oh, better talk to him about cars. That's a long time ago. You said at the start, 45 years ago. Mm.
0: How did your relationship with James evolve then over the three years of the Formula One team? Would you say you were friends by the end? James was a friend. The relationship.
1: So we got better and better friends as time went on. And then you have, at the start of 1975, looking. At how competitive the car was to understand where anyone thought the team was going, you've really got to look at where it was on the grid. And the fact was that you know we were all you know looking for harikari swords if we were on the third, fourth, certainly on the fourth row of the grid. I mean, so I, mean, I know t- you look at teams now, never know they've got no idea what the first three rows of the grid look like. You know they require valium to go there and feel they're were all right. I mean, it's like and points and podium finishes and all of that. And the reality is that I think at the beginning of 75, we were all pretty confident we would get a deal. Now, I always assumed that at the end of 75, if we got a deal, that that deal would go on and Heskey Racing would evolve and that my interest would only be financial after that. Because for bubbles to make it work, whoever was paying the bills, you can't start having a committee of ownership. So that would have been it. And with the benefit of hindsight, that would have been great because if that had happened, we got a sponsor, you go on, form one constructors association evolves into everything else that came blah, blah, blah. And I'd have got same as what Tyrrell got, the rest of them, 30 million quid. And that would have been terrific. But we didn't get there. And we didn't get there because we were seen as problematical in the way that I've described to you. And for reasons that I understand, because the world's changed. It's very easy now if you say, oh, well, you know, they just said they were a bunch of playboys. I mean, the fact is now, if you say it's a bunch of playboys, they're all looking to find bunches of playboys that look authentic. And we were
0: more authentic than anything that's been created since. <laughs> looking more at the specifics of the team, would you have done it without James Hunt? If Bubbles hadn't hired him at Chimay in Belgium, would you have even made the step into Formula 2, let alone Formula 1? No. And did James feel indebted to you for that? I think if he felt indebted, he wouldn't have been as good
1: as he was. You've got to remember... The most unusual world champions are the guys who win a world championship in not the most competitive car. I mean, the most uninteresting world champions are the guys who've got the best car, because that's the easiest way to win the world championship. And if you look at the record back, we go back in okay, modern GP history, go back to 1949, there is a very, very consistent level. Usually, only the Grim Reaper stands between the fact and the result. James, never in his career, was in the most competitive car
0: that's what makes him a great driver do you think he was underestimated
1: uh yes i do i think he was underestimated because uh he couldn't get any sponsorship he could be quite difficult what was a difficult james hunt like when would you cross to be with exceptional him? look i know everyone will always produce the ultimate test pilot who is so cool you know, but actually I, in my experience most people who I have worked with closely, who are exceptional, can be quirky. They have to be. That's what makes them special. No question about it.
0: And James was that? Yeah. He had an extraordinary talent. So what did you make of him vomiting before the start of a race and things like that? I understand it completely. People don't realise. It's like, you know, people,
1: I think, may think that Mrs. Thatcher just walked up to the dispatch box, cool as a cucumber, get it out like a sort of sabre and whip, slish, slash, slash. It's not like that. She was very, very nervous. People are filled with self-doubt, filled with fear, filled with lack of self-belief, or think they haven't got enough self-belief. They're human. Because they're human, they've got frailty. Very, very few people really reach the top of anything if they don't have serious reservations about their ability. What was his greatest strength? Well, uh, I think his greatest strength was something which I don't understand at all. So I'm a very poor person to answer the question. But what is very interesting is that he was quite exceptionally good at cricket, at tennis, at squash, and I think that his greatest strength is, I think he had a truly exceptional sense of timing. And that is, uh, you know, you've got it or you haven't got it. The, the interesting question is, does he, did he understand that? And if so, how did he actually make it work even better for him? Question, why didn't I ask him that question? <laughs> I'll tell you exactly why. Because I thought if I asked him that question, it might break the spell. So, I don't think we'll ever know.
0: Mm. Okay. His what about his weaknesses?
1: I don't think he had a major weakness. I think I think he had a fragility about him, belied, you know, because he was very fit. He was quite early, I suppose. In I mean, the, in in appreciating, he wanted to be fitter than the car required. That was demonstrated. When he first, when we had to lift him out of the car at Monaco, the first time we ever did enough one race, he couldn't get out of the car. He was, he was. I mean, yeah, he was fit, and he was completely. There was nothing left of him.
0: Did he dwell on mistakes?
1: How not quickly me, would he not, move on? Not to me. You'd have to ask Bubbles about that. Yeah. I think of, of all the people who, who really knew him, in terms of reflecting on his career at the time, I think
0: Bubbles was the closest. And how much did he work at it? Over a Grand Prix weekend, would he spend a lot of time thinking about car setup? Or when he wasn't driving, was he out partying? Was it as simple as that?
1: No, no, we had no partying. Partying stopped at first practice.
0: <laughs> okay, every race. So,
1: no, in the cockpit, certainly for the driver, not necessarily for all other members of the team. How serious was he? He was very serious about his driving. I think he was very serious about his journalism. I don't think in a way, that he actually believed he could write as well as he did. Do you think he could believe that he drove
0: as well as he did?
1: Again, you see, I was so terrified of breaking the spells. So I, I I love this, not wanting to break the spell. Well, no, I didn't
0: want to break the Le spell. Le
1: Patron didn't want to... No, because uh, um, you've got to think that this team came from nowhere very quick. Uh, there were a lot of people expecting it to fall over. OK, yeah. But actually, against a great deal of adversity, it continued and it succeeded. I mean, you can argue about how you define success. I think success at the end of the day is measured by reputation. And the reputation of the team has, in my opinion, survived a great deal longer than I thought it would.
0: What about James's extracurricular activities? A lot is said about it. Apocryphal?
1: you know why, in a funny way? I think the interesting thing about James is James came to the team. Heskid Racing was not a crusade. It was not a rich man saying, I want to own a racing team. There have been plenty of them. Quite a lot of them don't go anywhere. Heskid Racing was an idea. It was a collective idea, but it was a completely English idea. It was a very, very strange thing, but it's an idea. And that is actually why I think it survived, because whether we got pissed, we didn't get pissed, whether we smoked too much dope or didn't smoke enough, whether we got laid, didn't get laid, is actually not really either very interesting or very relevant. Why is the teddy bear t-shirt today still the second best-selling t-shirt after the Ferrari t
0: shirt are you still getting royalties for that?
1: No, I never got a royalty. Okay. They're, all, they're all rip-offs. I've never earned a penny out of it. But the reason is because it's an idea. I can't tell you what the idea is. The idea started on a street in Pimlico with Bubble saying to me, will you put some cash up for this car? And it evolved into something which, I mean, you could say it's sort of, it's, It's In some ways it's slightly hippie-like, in some ways it's anti-materialist, it's all sorts of different things. But it's also about excellence, it's also about purity, it's about amateur sport in a way, it's about a lot of ideals that actually are progressively denigrated. It's the absolute antithesis of politics in sport. You know, it's, and that's maybe why people find it attractive and they still want to know about it and they write about it. The thing about Hesketh Racing is it was basically about idealism and an ambition within some kind of ill-defined idealism. But nonetheless, it was about a free spirit and it's not about control. And the people who want to only talk about how good were the parties who got laid, actually don't want that to carry on, because it's actually quite an inconvenient narrative in the contemporary world of sports, which is also trying to, in my opinion, rather bogusly, try and make itself more relevant than it is. Sport is relevant, but it is not a fundamental of humanity. You've got to remember that that both Texaco and Brute, two wholly unrelated products, both had two pictures. Well, they had a daddy, they had um, Henry Cooper, but the two likely lads were Barry Sheen and James Hunt. What I will say is this, I think that Barry Sheen, who I knew very, very well, and James, who I knew very, very well, I think they had more fun than any of the household names, be it in the Premier League or on the racetrack today. I'm absolutely sure of that. I'm (laughs) absolutely, I'm totally, (laughs) and I I know for a fact.
0: (laughs) Well, it's been fantastic to talk through the Hesketh Racing story. When you reflect on it now, are you a little bit sad that you pulled the plug when you did? No. Do you wish the name was still out there? on the Grand Prix tracks no I
1: don't it's like movie stars keep them in their prime there's nothing worse than looking back and saying well this is a great team sorry this was a great team you know because it's 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 sad you know there he is well he's been there we are poor old Lord Eskies he's been on the back of the grid the last five summers there we are he's got to go it's all going now. there we are James needed to be world champion. Now, I didn't have the cash to do it for him.
0: What did James say to you at the end of 76, after he got back from Japan, having won the world championship? Can you remember your first conversation with him? Yeah, I spoke to him just after he, I mean, we got hooked up just after he won it. You know,
1: if someone's a good friend, you don't have to. And I would have been shocked if he said, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for what you've done. He knew what I'd done, I knew what I'd done. We didn't need to say anything. I saw him when he, when he got back to London, and he was just so happy, and he was very happy to see me. And that told me all I needed to know. My time had been, and this was his big moment in the sun, and it had to be. The tragedy is that he didn't really, you know, he, the following year, the car wasn't much good, and the only thing which he did do was he got out of the car when it scared him. And I think that shows a level of intelligence,
0: which um, was particularly at that time was admirable. It's funny, his first race, Monaco, his last race, Monaco, 79. Well, there you go. Lord Hesketh, thank you very much for your time. It's been a wonderful chat. Great. Tom, thank you. I feel like I've been in a time warp. What brilliant insight from Lord Hesketh into his eponymous team. So many great stories and some brilliant lines too. Very foolishly, we made the mistake of approaching this in a professional manner. That, in a nutshell, sums up Hesketh Racing and explains why they frustrated so many people within the sport. And Hesketh's answer to my question about James Hunt's strengths was fascinating as well. He was quite exceptionally good at cricket, tennis and squash, and he had a truly exceptional sense of timing. No mention of one lap pace or car setup, but that was Hesketh. Lord Hesketh, many thanks for your time. It was great to speak to you, and everyone listening to this will have enjoyed your reminiscences of 70s Formula One. Before we go, let's have a quick delve through the virtual mailbag to see what you've been saying about the show. And it seems you loved hearing from Renault Sporting Director Alan Permain last week. Marco got in touch to say this. I enjoyed this one a lot. I've been a fan for as long as Alan has been in the sport. So to hear those stories about all the great drivers that have been in that team from Benetton to Renault was awesome. What a great, humble bloke. Cheers. All of the above, Marco. Humble and passionate. Alan still loves Formula One, doesn't he? And Gabriel said, I think engineers bring something really beyond the grid. Nice, like that. Insights that otherwise would not be heard. It was really cool to know a bit about how Alan's career progressed and very humble of him to say that he's got to stay relevant. Congrats, nice meeting you. And how important is it, Gabriel, to have someone with that mentality in a senior role at the team? Alan is a great person for younger team members to learn from. And finally, let's hear from Gunnar Tinger, who said, What a great interview. Especially liked Alan's comments about Jean Lacy. I was always a fan and had a feeling he's a nice guy. Good to have it confirmed. Indeed so, Gunnar. Two nice guys, Jean Alessi and Alan Permain. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. But as ever, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to like and review the show. And please keep your comments coming because we read them all I'm at tomclarksonf one on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Thanks for listening. As ever, Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.